0: Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one with innovators, startup, academia, NGO all together looking for solutions to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Tini and this is the Sustainability Journey. Welcome to another episode. And today we are going to discuss some controversial issues, but also how solutions can be brought. And we will discuss about the role of life, the role of grazing in the fight of climate change. And we are doing it with an expert. who has been there studying regenerative practices for more than 10 years. And he's also a successful filmmaker. So I'm pleased to have the professor of practice at Arizona State University, Peter Brick. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for being here with us today.
1: Uh, thank you, Samuel. It's really nice to be here.
0: Karibu Kenya, as we say, <laughs> we, we'd love also to have your wisdom and, and, and apply also your research in this part of the world. But before going to the research and the discussions, what is your sustainability journey, Peter?
1: Well, when I found out about climate change, watching Al Gore's film An Inconvenient Truth in 2006, I decided I need to make a movie about solutions. And so it took me about a year to get that going. And then we took 3 years to make that film and that came out in 2010 that film's called Carbon Nation and in the US it's it's such a politically divided subject because it, the well has been poisoned that we worked really hard on our sort of our subtitle so Carbon Nation's the movie we thought that was fun and funny and we wanted people to know we weren't taking ourselves too seriously with a very serious subject but we also said it's a climate change solutions movie that doesn't even care if you believe in climate change so we could bring people together that have been polarized or being told they're polarized in the U.S. And it worked really, really well. We got people who didn't think they'd agree with me, with us to really look at solutions to climate change that were just practical, good business solutions. So that was my journey in interviewing over 300 people. It was just like a getting a Ph.D. in the subject. It was a f- phenomenal experience. And then I was on the road for two or three years with the movie. And it was that movie. And it was the fact that we were having conservatives and and liberals and skeptics and climate concern folks speaking uh, that brought ASU, Arizona State University and me together. And so that's when I joined academia was in 2013. I went to film school. I went to Cal Arts, which was started by Disney back in the 60s. I graduated in 86 and then had a whole career in the film business directing music videos, editing documentaries, making documentaries. And so coming out here to to Phoenix and Tempe, Arizona was 10 years ago, right about right now. And in the making of carbonation, I thought okay, if I can only work on one solution next because we did all sorts of solutions in carbonation, land use, energy efficiency, renewable energy, sort of leadership. I was like, what one thing could I work on? And in our research, in the movie, and as I was meeting people, the soils just kept coming up as a problem if treated poorly for climate change, and a huge solution if treated well for climate change. And when we made carbonation... I thought eating meat was not the best thing for the planet. We had all sorts of information in there, but we also showed that soils were really important. And so I wanted to make, I was being introduced to the idea of regenerative grazing, you know, Alan Savory's work and people like that. And so I wanted to make a short film about that. And I was introduced to a fellow named Alan Williams, who introduced me to Gabe Brown, who introduced me to Neil Dennis. And so in 2013, we made a very short film about those people, and that's called Soil Carbon Cowboys. So that's that's the fulcrum of my life now, was that short film. And I got to see what regenerative grazing looks like, smells like, feels like. You feel better on this land. You hear more insects, more life. The different plants that are growing, it's, it's an amazing experience to feel it. And so... I then was thinking, well, these folks solving climate change? Are they bringing down enough carbon to solve climate change? And they had indicators. Their soils looked better. They were seeing things. They were getting some measurements in their soil, but it really, there was very little science, very little science, except for a paper by Richard Teague. That was it. And so while I was making that film and while I was getting to ASU in just that year, 2013, I was meeting all these scientists, all these scientists who were working on a piece of this story. The bug scientists, the microbial scientists, the rangeland scientists, the bird ecologists, you know, all these people. And so at the end of 2013, we got this grant here at ASU and to bring various scientists around to work on a national issue. That was the grant's broad spectrum. So we brought everybody out in 2014, it was about 12 people. And for the first time in a lot of their lives, They were getting yes ands, yes ands, yes ands around the table. They were really in a place where they were getting support. And for me, I was new to this whole thing. I didn't know scientists. I didn't know science. I didn't know research. I was just seeing a whole group of people agreeing that we need to do research. And so that's what we set out to do. And and so from 2014 to 2018, we designed the research I am not a scientist, but I helped lead the team. I helped do the fundraising and keep the team pushing forward. And in 2018, we got enough funding to get out in the field. So from 2018 to 2022, we were in the field measuring and filming. And so we've made a four-part documentary series on all this research, on all the farmers that we met. It's called Roots So Deep, You Can See the Devil Down There. I want to also go a bit deeper because
0: some people also in the audience, they might not be aware, you know, on what is the regeneration, what is the adaptive paradox and, and also the work that you are doing on Road So Deep. So can you go a bit, elaborate a bit more on this part, because it's really fascinating the work you are doing.
1: What we've discovered from, I made 10 short films from Soil Carbon Cowboys to Herd Impact. There's 10 short films on our website, CarbonCowboys.org, and just seeing the same story over and over and over again of the success farmers had by the way they moved their cattle, by the fact that they had them in a herd, and they would move them quickly so as a short duration graze where they eat half the forage, stomp half the forage, and move on, and so most of the farm is getting rested most of the time. It's a mimicry of the way bison's Big buffalo bison moved across the Great Plains in the U.S. and built very deep top soils. Herding animals around the world did the same sort of ecological uh, landscaping, land management with nature. And so these farmers were trying to figure out how do they raise their animals for less money because they were going out of business. They stumbled upon this idea of mimicking nature as opposed to fighting nature, and it just worked. So what they did was they change their water cycle on their land they changed the amount of wildlife on their land by letting their forage grow tall eating half leaving half quick duration grazing and moving on so that changed everything for the farmers more birds are on their land and so we we saw the difference but we wanted to measure all those metrics we wanted to measure the greenhouse gases we wanted to see if this truly was a climate solution or was it just really good for farmers and here's how? Or was it just really good for wildlife and drought mitigation and flood mitigation? So we measured all of these metrics. And what I learned when I started was I was just looking at carbon, right? I was just looking at carbon. And I was told and taught by great scientists, you know, if you're going to talk about a grazing system, a farm system as a solution to climate change. You have to look at three greenhouse gases. You have to look at CO2, you have to look at methane, and you have to look at nitrous oxide. And so we went to the trouble and raised enough money to measure both the soil carbon stocks, nitrogen, soil nitrogen stocks, and the greenhouse gas flux for all those greenhouse gases. And we measured it in a lot of different methods, both old and new. And then before we even got in the field, we vetted our methods to a lot of people, people that don't want people to eat meat. We we found scientists that are very much about let's get meat off the planet. Let's get livestock off the planet. We wanted to know that our methods were acceptable. So whatever data we came up with that we found, what we measured would be acceptable because of the methods. And then people could disagree about the level of solution that that we may or may not find. And so that's the idea of the project and the scientists that we on our team were all very much engaged because we were looking at a system. We weren't looking at just one thing. I mean, if you just look at methane and cattle, you will see a problem, right? But if you measure how much carbon the grazing system is drawing down, it overcompensates for the warming of the methane and the nitrous oxide in our study, like quite a bit. And that data is still being worked on, so it's an evolving number, but it's it's big. Fantastic.
0: It's really amazing. And what I like really is not only the carbon focus, but also what you discussed, also the biodiversity uh, regeneration, the, the work on soil erosion and and loss of topsoil and nutrients. So it's really an holistic solution. I want to really, can you give us, you have said that now you are working on Deep Roots and then the film and we'll put all the links down, but can you give us a, a sneak peek of what the findings, the work that you have done in this series?
1: So our research is being published. We have some research that's already published. We have other data that's not yet published. So I just need to be clear about that so that our scientists are cared for. And so... So what we did was we, we found adaptive farmers, farmers who were doing adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Some people think of it as holistic plan grazing or strip grazing or mob grazing. Those are all different names. And we did a big research, a big uh, survey, sent out a survey, sent out a request in the Southeast US because we thought that would show the most accrual quickly of carbon in the soil. That's why we picked the Southeast U.S. It has a long growing season. It's got a lot of moisture. And so that's why we picked that area. So we got responses back about 90 to 100 adaptive cattle farmers wrote back to us and said, here's what we do. Here's our methods. And we found 25 of those that we thought we should go scout those. So we scouted 25 of those and we picked five. That's how we found the adaptive farmers. And they're in Kentucky, Tennessee two in Alabama and one in Mississippi. And so that's what we found. We then had to go to their neighbor and say, will you allow us to do all this research on your land that we're doing on your neighbor's land? And their neighbor was conventionally grazing the way most people graze. And so that was the gamble. That was the uncertainty of our work, big uncertainty, because would they say yes? And um, all the neighbors said yes. And so that's how we found the neighbors. So that's how random it was, how we found these places. And the neighbors had to have the same soil type as the adaptive neighbor. The conventional neighbor had to have the same soil type, same aspect, same slope. So that was where we tried to get as much as possible apples to apples comparison in a real world setting that gets very messy. As you'll see in our series, real world science is difficult and challenging, and things happen that you don't expect, things happen that you don't like. What really showed up for us was that the conventional farmers were curious about what the adaptive farmers were doing. They were just too polite to ask. They were, you know, in a country setting, in a rural setting, uh, folks let everyone have their own business. They don't get in everyone's business and um, because i was making a film as we were doing the research i was there with every research team all the different metrics we were studying the bugs the greenhouse gases the water the soil carbon the birds so i was there a lot i got to meet the farmers on both sides of the fence all you know and spend time with them and so i said hey do you guys want to talk about this they hadn't yet and they said yes that was a really cool part of the research was seeing that if people just have a little bit of a nudge to talk about it, you can get a lot done. That was a big surprise and a big benefit for the research. I mean, in a nutshell, there's a lot more carbon on the adaptive side in the soil than the conventional side. There's a lot more nitrogen in the adaptive side than the conventional side. And that's nitrogen in the soil, right? And the interesting thing about that data is that the farmer's on the conventional side, apply nitrogen fertilizer. It's expensive. It's $50,000, $100,000 a year, yet the adaptive farmers who do not apply the nitrogen fertilizer because they're not growing hay, because they don't need to feed nearly as much hay, because their forage is growing so much more, because of the way they're grazing, they don't have that expense. Without that expense, they still have more usable nitrogen in their soil. That's got to be a a universal across the planet benefit. It's going to be higher in wetter areas. It's going to be lower in drier areas, we think. Uh, We're we're taking our research up to the northern Great Plains of the U.S. right now and to North and South Dakota, which is a much shorter growing season, a much drier area and a much cooler area. So we're going to see what the differences are measuring a lot of the same metrics that we did in the in the southeast U.S., it's
0: really fascinating, and and I really please you know the benefits. What I can really see and my question, and then you can also go deeper in the benefits and the replicability, the work that you are doing. It seems like a win-win solution. It's good for the pocket. It's good for the environment, and you know you you prevent overutilization or utilization at all of fertilizer. You prevent acidification of oceans. You restore fertility of soils. You work towards let's say water and biodiversity. So do you think that this solution, and then please go out also in the, in the other findings, do you think that this can be a solution to really make grazing sustainable, go away with traditional practices that not only in there in the planet, but they're also the livelihoods of many farmers?
1: Yeah. What's the number? You probably know it better than me. I think it's like, is it a half billion people on earth are dealing in the are in the grazing business, livestock business, and just about and a huge portion of that are smallholder cattle farmers. So I've always wondered if in areas like in Kenya, in India, if people use this grazing method where everyone has a, uh, I'm not super knowledgeable about this, but a lot of smallholders will have one or two or four head of cattle. Is that accurate? they'll They'll be in an area where everyone's trying to get to the best grazing and it's competitive. And if there was a way to make the grazing lands a commons, bring everyone's herds together, bring everyone's animals together as a herd, and then replicate the same grazing method, the adaptive multi-paddock grazing method, could that benefit everybody in a community where everyone's just in a small hold of, of cattle? I don't know the answer to that, but that's something I've wondered about. and and um. I've seen the benefits when people bring all their animals into one herd and treat their land like a commons, but over here they have, it's their land. It's not, and they're not in competition for that, you know, that piece of grazing area. I think that with the data that we found, this is absolutely a climate change solution when looking at the three greenhouse gases, it's uh, it's quite large. And, and like I say, that data is not yet published, it's in our movie, People can watch our movie. They can go to our website, request a screening. We're out on the road right now screening it, but it's significant. And will people get that same kind of greenhouse gas drawdown, that CO2 equivalent drawdown that we're seeing in our data? And everywhere on the planet, I think it'll be a scale of efficacy, a scale of of solution. But I've been in very many different ecosystems where farmers apply this method, uh, whether they're in desert whether they're in a huge drought in a semi-arid land, whether they're in a huge drought in the middle of the U.S., whether they're in a super wet area in southwestern uh, England or up in Canada. And it's been very, very successful for them. I want to see how it works in South Africa, where my wife is from. I want to see how it works in China and Mongolia. I know it's working. I know people are doing it in all these places and having huge success. Australia, France, and so... I know a lot of people don't want people to eat meat. I know there's a lot of people that think all livestock should just be taken off the planet. And I can tell you, I used to be kind of like that, not all the way down that road. I understand that because if you look at conventional industrial meat production, it's devastating. But you have to look at conventional industrial plant production too. It is devastating. And so when folks are saying they want a plant-based diet, they've got to look at how the plants are being produced too. The industrial model is devastating no matter what you're growing. And in my time, my team's research, my experience, I'm seeing that if you treat animals really well in the field, you graze them out and you replicate nature, that nature shows up on the farm. And... That uh, huge amounts of carbon are drawn down, and it is definitely a solution. And so, I think it has to be looked at. You don't want to ignore this. And I know there's a lot of people who've been looking at cattle as a eco villain for a long time. And I agree with what they're looking at. They're looking at a sick system, and yeah, that's a sick system. I agree. But we're finding a very healthy system. That's jaw-dropping and we're doing the research we're taking our time we're being very rigorous and we're seeing something truly remarkable and that's what I want to be able to share with folks so they can then make possibly new decisions or adjust their decisions or just know there's a nuance and it's not just black and white fantastic Peter and when you were
0: talking seen especially also in large areas, especially also in in Africa, and you mentioned South Africa and other where ranches and rangelands could be a win-win solution for communities and which sometimes they have issues with drought, they are facing climate change and can also be a, a for wildlife. But I want to ask this question consumers, especially in the US, vote and you vote vote your back. And how people, is there a differentiation in the market with Meat that is done with these these regenerative practices that you are studying. How can people, you know, vote where their everyday meal and support farmers in that are working towards regeneration towards farmers that are still stuck in the business as usual
1: model? Farmers that are still that are grazing conventionally, they're certainly the majority. And what I found in my work is a lot of those farmers do not know this is an option. They've never been taught this as an option. And so this isn't a blame the farmer thing at all, like at all. I've become very, very much a a supporter of farmers while I've been doing this work. And I'm not a farmer. I was not raised on a farm. So this is a new world for me over this last decade. And I've been just grateful to have this experience. There's just a lot of farmers that when they find out about this, they get it. And so the reason that we did the research was we wanted to find out, is this a true climate solution? And the answer is yes. But The reason we made the documentary was that if we did show up with a solution, we'd have a vehicle for making sure the world knew about it. And so that's what we're just revving up right now is that marketing and distribution of this docu-series. Um, And so we have a feature on our website at carboncowboys.org is um, just request a screening and we'll set it up and we'll make sure you can screen it. So wherever you are on earth, you have a very international audience. Let's get this thing going. Consumers also are confused, right? There's a lot of things out there. So how do you clarify that? Um, there's a new badge that that friends of ours are developing. It's called Regenified. Regenified.com is their website. And they have a very rigorous assessment of farmers before a farmer can say that they're grown in a way that re- regenerates the soil. And so I like that approach. And so they're working on that. There's other badges that are out there. There's talk about how you get the government to properly label food so that if it's grown in a country, it's labeled as grown in a country and you can't grow food from another country and label it that's grown in this country. So a lot of confusion there too. But the way it was described to me at a food co-op in Albuquerque eight years ago was, you know, cheap food isn't cheap if you put it in the same bucket as your health care. That kind of education piece is really important. And I think there's a lot of really cool people working on that. Um, Fred Provenza and Stefan van Vliet are looking at the the nutrient profile of grass finished beef and other animals versus you know, feedlot finished beef, which is very much prevalent in North America and, and is spreading. They're basically looking at is it healthier and which one is healthier and how is it healthier? And so they're looking at all those benefits. And so all those things can educate the consumer. There's another film called Common Ground that's just coming out. I think it's a really good overview of educating folks about regenerative agriculture, both history and and some of the practitioners that are doing it really, really well. And so films, research, how do you make it easy for a consumer to, to make the right choice? I think we're figuring that out. How do you make it easy for big food companies to want this? Well, the consumers have to know about it to drive it. So it's, it's a lot of levers, a lot of levers that need to be pulled sometimes in a sequence. And so we knew that science was foundational. So that's why we've spent this much time and effort to get research.
0: I really like your approach because now you have evidence data which are rigorous and scientific based which now can inform your awareness campaign and your giving voice in a way which also can translate to people and consumer want to go towards that type of meat consumption uh, rather than the traditional one And, and and my question is really this you have laid the foundation but then you have also the filmmaking and i'm really curious to see how you have mentioned a bit how these filmmaking and documentaries are really also transpassing your and, and really working together and like in conjunction with your academic work. And how can this can be a, an important way to showcase today to the world?
1: As as uh, human beings, we all like a good story, right? I mean, I think since we were sitting around a campfire, you know, 10,000 years ago, I think story has been part of our just our DNA, our enjoyment of life. And so filmmakers are part of that storytelling tradition, right? You know, phenomenal filmmakers that that you see a good film, you feel energized. You feel like you want to do something exciting, right? And, and when I see a bad film, I feel deflated. So film has always been a, a roller coaster for me. Great ones bring me up and bad ones bring me down. And I wish I wasn't that way, but I am. And so with science, it can be very dry when you're just talking about data, right? It can't, like, the emotional connection to a scientist is hard to get in a research paper. I don't think research papers and peer-reviewed science is really built to contain the emotional connection that that scientist feels and the passion they feel for the work they're doing. Like, the scientists on our team are passionate, caring human beings, And so by showing them on film, we can show their passion and their caring and their sense of humor. And right, we can show all that. We can show their frustration that you can't get in a research paper. And then meeting the farmers. I mean, one of the best compliments I got on our film was someone said they felt like they'd been invited to these people's homes. They'd been invited to their farm. And it's a very intimate, empathetic experience. And so for me that's what film gives us it gives us empathy, intimacy, humor, beauty, beautiful shot of of what you're looking at. And then music, you know. So all those things are hard to get in a research paper when you're reading it. They're they're just not there usually. I can't say they're never there because I, I haven't read all the papers that have been written. But film gives us that ability to to connect on a on a very human level. That's what we strive for. We don't always achieve it,
0: but that's our goal. See, sometimes when you see research in very formal and difficult English with discussions and context, research methodology, quality, and then formulas, it's really, it is a bit difficult to see how this impactful is, you know, sometimes if if you are a lay person, as the normal people are, if you are not in, in deep knowledge, but what you are doing is really showing how practical the solution are and the results. And my subsequent question is really see, you have discussed that your research is publishing, you're going to Dakota now to, to see. Can you give us a bit of what is the future of your research? Where, where are you heading to?
1: Uh, getting all the papers published from our Southeast work is, is paramount. I, on our website, carboncowboys.org, under the tab research, you can see published research and you can see where everything has been published to date. And also in that tab is where all our funding came from, so you can find out where every dollar that we raised to do this work came from. We're now up up in North and South Dakota replicating the research up there in a different ecosystem. Where our research goes after that, I don't know. Um, I know people are looking at replicating our research in Scotland. We've been talking to some folks in France and talking to some folks in in Australia. Our science team is so busy beyond this project. They've all, like everyone on our teams like got enormous amounts of projects going on. So they've got huge projects themselves like Jonathan Lundgren, who was our bug specialist on this research is doing full system science measurement on, he's got a project called Thousand Farms. I think he's like at 750 right now of doing a lot of metric research across, I think it's across the US, I'm pretty sure into Canada. So that's just one of our scientists who's got something big, giant. You know, another one of our scientists who was doing enteric emissions, you know, burps, measuring the burps from the cattle, the methane, Jason Roundtree out of Michigan State University. He's got this giant project with the Noble Foundation across the country. And so there's each one of our scientists, Francesca Cotrufo and Sam Mosier, they're our soil scientists that did the lab work for the soil samples. They've got a whole company created called sequester and they're just doing amazing work and then the greenhouse gas teams one of our teams has a tower that measures the CO2 coming in and out of the ground they've started their own company called Quantera and so just out of this team of people we we've been lucky enough to work with there's all this stuff happening so i would say the future of our research is all of these people and their amazing work going forward as much as anything they're rock stars
0: Fantastic. And I'm sure I mean I'm looking forward to see the replication maybe this side of the world and to see how it can also be applied and maybe Rutsu Deep can have African chapter and some work in this side of the world.
1: Yeah, and our social scientist, uh, Dr. Jennifer Hodbod, she was at Arizona State with me, then she went to Michigan State, now she's at Leeds University. She's doing and has done a lot of work in Kenya. So her work is already there. I would like to see the methods, for me, the research is really important, but the getting the knowledge to farmers, letting them choose whether they want to do it or not, and then helping them get, that's sort of what I want to be doing next, like to get to thousands and thousands of farmers, give them the information, see if they want to make the choice, help them make the choice with both knowledge, funding and then continue the research right on all those farms continue the measurement and then continue telling those stories so that's where that's where i see my future is uh, that's all collaborative like not one of those things do i do that's all collaborative right but helping to get it going that might be where i can play a part right to like be a cheerleader and bringing academia and at the grassroots level with with farmers
0: and really also raising awareness. As you say, storytelling has a lot of power and it really can change and and educate farmers and also educate consumers to make sustainable choices. It's really a fascinating work that you are doing and it really shows how change makers around the world may be often not under the spotlight, but they're trying to bring real solution which can help let us say the win-win solution, which is often overused terminology, but those are the solution that we really want to see and to really create this sustainability journey for our human race and also for our planet. And I want to, to ask you the last message that we usually give to our audience.
1: What do you want to give to our audience that is listening to you? Hopefully, I'll be giving your audience along with what I want, which is knowledge that there are solutions to climate change that can be scaled. Um, I need to know that or need to know it's not possible. I need to know. And that's why I've spent a decade on this journey. And finding out that indeed, yes, it is a solution, not the, but a solution is is rewarding and daunting because everything's got to change. Food production has to change. Like across the board, across the world. You look at soil erosion across the world, it's it's a big deal. But we know through regenerative grazing and regenerative agriculture, it's not just grazing, that we can rebuild soils. Like, that's a doable thing. And so, and just on the wildlife piece, on our research, just this one little last note, grassland birds in the United States, their population is depleted over 50%. There's a paper from Cornell from 1970 to 2017 or 18. 51 percent. Some of those birds have depleted up to 85 percent. And what we found on our research is on the adaptive side of the fence, just a fence. There's 300 percent more of those grassland birds, both in diver. There's more diversity, but there's more more of them. And it's just showing that if you If you create a situation where nature wants to be nature will go there you know that's based on letting the plants grow to waist high biodiverse plant forage production a lot more insects show up and those birds come to eat and nest and so to me seeing a metric like that seeing that nature's making a decision to be there is well beyond a human decision a policy a tax you know an educational campaign a film i'll trust nature every time that was one of the data points that we got that was very encouraging to me this is really a very powerful message and such a
0: message of hope if we are live with nature and sometimes we mimic nature nature will stay with us and also support us in this way so Peter, thank you so much for this wonderful episode, full of insights, and it has been really a real pleasure hosting you.
1: Well, thank you, Samuel.
0: Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.